In uh, America as well as Norway, there is a problem with false gospel teaching and a kind of false gospel teaching that actually leads people astray from going to churches that are truly built on the apostolic ministry and on the gospel and rather are built on worldly things. And people are being deceived by such teachers today just as the apostles had to deal with in their day as well. There's a, uh, a very popular false gospel known as the Word of Faith movement today. It's, it's been around for a long time. In fact, it has its roots in Corinth. It has its roots in the first century. The Word of Faith movement is a kind of movement that if suffering is happening in your life, it's because there's something wrong with your faith. So any kind of suffering or hardship is associated with your own lack of faith. And then on the flip side, if things are going well for you, it's because your faith is strong. And the teaching so goes, whether it's you and your family, and your, your, if your job's going well, it's because you have great faith. If it's going poorly, you have lack of faith. You know, so they'll go about telling you, you need to claim that car. You need to claim that house. You need to claim that job. And if you have enough faith, God's going to give it to you. You know, if you have enough faith, you can live your best life now. And that kind of false gospel is so prevalent in the world today as it was in Corinth. In fact, as we turn to Corinth in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul being judged as illegitimate because of his weaknesses and because of his sufferings. And there are super apostles, to use a phrase that Paul will use in this letter, going about saying, don't listen to Paul. He is not even a true apostle. Look at his life. Look at his suffering. Look at how the world hates him. Look how he says mean things to you. He's not always nice. Look at the division surrounding his ministry. And they're pointing at these things to say that Paul's weaknesses are a mark of his spiritual illegitimacy. He is no leader. He's no apostle of Jesus. Just look at his life. And they're using the very things that God is using for the gospel against him to undercut his ministry and to drive whole churches that Paul began away from Paul. What we will find in this letter, in fact, that while Corinth is distancing themselves from Paul, they're actually distancing themselves away from God. That in being estranged to Paul, they're actually becoming estranged to God. So Paul is battling in this letter that we're going to look at this morning, he is battling with 
or I should say, against the super apostles for the soul of Corinth. Before it's too late for Corinth, he is doing battle. He'll even use the language of warfare in this letter for the soul of the church. And that's what we must continue to do today. We must battle and wage war for the soul of the church. Paul's appeal in this letter will be to be reconciled to God, but how are they reconciled to God? It's actually reconciled to God through us. Paul is saying the way you are reconciled to God is actually through the apostolic ministry because it is through the apostles that God has proclaimed his gospel and has laid the foundation of the church. My appeal then this morning is going to be that we must be a church built on the New Testament apostles, that is, on the word of God. Not the worldliness of super apostles and the false gospels that are so prevalent today, lest we be alienated and cut off from God. So that is where we are going today. My appeal will be, we must be built on the foundation of the apostles. We must be built on the foundation of the apostles, for it is from the apostles that the gospel is given. And it's from the apostles that the whole, not only what the church is, but how the church should live and conduct itself is modeled for us. And just as there was a problem then, so there is now super apostles that will want to deceive us and trick us into thinking the church should be and act in a way that God has not intended. And in so doing, just like Lucifer in the garden, we could be in danger of losing everything. So as Paul battled for the soul of the church, I will battle for the soul of this church and the ministry that we share together as we look through this letter this morning. I want to look at three things today in this text. First, we're going to look uh, at 2 Corinthians as an appeal for reconciliation. Secondly, we'll look at 2 Corinthians as a defense for apostolic weakness. Why does the church look weak? What is God's purpose in that? And then thirdly, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians as a wake-up call lest we boast in the wrong thing and make shipwreck of our faith. So those are the three places we're going to go this morning. So first, let's look at 2 Corinthians as an appeal to reconciliation. Now, where do we find this in Corinth? It's actually everywhere, through every chapter, Paul is building a case for reconciliation. But because we just have one message this morning to look at the whole book, I'm going to point you to a few key places, and that will give you a better frame of reference when you study the book for yourself. Sometimes it's actually helpful to start with the end. And so go all the way to chapter 13, and then we can work backwards. In Paul's final warnings here in chapter 13, 
Look at verse 5, one of his closing exhortations to the stubborn Corinthians. Examine yourselves. That is, test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So here at the close of the letter, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians, and we're going to see some of the things that he'll say, but at the end he's saying, now after everything I've said, after all the issues we've addressed about weakness and boasting and the right and wrong things, test yourself. Are you in Jesus Christ? Are you in Jesus Christ? Is your faith in Jesus Christ? Or is it in yourself, your perceived greatness, the boasts about your own glory. And there's a warning to test unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Likewise, we see in verse 9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. So Paul is giving us the purpose of everything he's written in this letter. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So finally, in this, we'll see in this letter, Paul's preparing to make a third visit to Corinth. And the last one was really painful. And he didn't want to have to make another painful visit. So this whole letter is to appeal to their obedience so that when he comes, it will be an edifying meeting rather than another one where judgment and power is going to have to be displayed to tear down rather than to build up. One final thing we can see in this chapter 2 in respect to reconciliation is his final exhortation in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Again, as, as we know from 1 Corinthians, as we walk through that book, there were politics, church politics going on, party spirits, all sorts of boasting, all sorts of division of every kind, spiritual boasting, socioeconomic boasting, all sorts of problems. And we see it continuing even after Paul's first letter through a painful visit he had to make. And now in the second letter, and again, he's appealing them, aim for restoration. If, do you want God to be with you? the God of peace, then aim for peace in your lives. So 2 Corinthians is, is, is an appeal to restoration, to examine yourself so that you see yourself rightly and you see your leaders rightly as well. But perhaps the most important part or the, the most important text in 2 Corinthians about restoration comes uh, towards the middle. Turn to chapter 5 with me. Verse 
In chapter 5, we come to a fairly, I would say, famous kind of passage of the New Testament, Ministers of Reconciliation, where Paul talks about being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Now, something that we often, maybe we don't get the context when we read this section, is the fact that we kind of read ourselves as Christians as, as Paul, as ambassadors of Jesus. And there is, there is a sense where each one of us is an ambassador for Jesus, but throughout this whole letter, Paul is defending the apostolic office. He's saying that me and the apostles that Jesus appointed, we are the ambassadors. And the Corinthians are the ones that need to be reconciled to God. But they're following other false leaders and teachers. And so the, the people that are the ambassadors in this text are the apostles. And here Paul specifically. And that's really important an important context to understand this passage correctly. So here, look at verse 16, for example, of chapter 5. From now on, therefore, we, that is Paul and Timothy and his colleagues, he's saying, we regard no one according to the flesh. And again, the Corinthians are regarding Paul and Timothy and these guys who are suffering according to the flesh. Look, they're weak. They're suffering. They can't be legitimate. But what Paul is saying is we, me, Timothy, and my colleagues regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. That is in Christ's weakness and seeming folly according to the world. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, that is again Paul and his colleagues, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us, that is Paul and the apostles, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, Paul and the apostles, are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so here, Paul is saying that the apostles have been entrusted as ambassadors from a nation, as it were, to be ministers of reconciliation. And I think of, of England, uh, Great Britain. You know, the, the public servants are called ministers, right? You have the minister of health and the minister of agriculture. And it's, that kind of language is used in some uh, other countries as well. But Paul and the apostles are ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom, right? And they are ambassadors that have been sent by God to reconcile people to God through their ministry. So the way in which people then and now are reconciled to God is through their ministry. It's through their proclamation. And that's why just as Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to be reconciled to God, 
He says, look at chapter 6, verse 1, then following immediately after, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, citing Isaiah 49, which Gideon read for us this morning. This great appeal in Isaiah is that this day of salvation would come where God as the Redeemer would save his people. And Paul is citing that chapter saying, this is that day, Corinth. This is that day. Be reconciled to God through our ambassadorial ministry. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You've heard the gospel. Now don't walk away from it. He says in verse 2, after citing Isaiah 49, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, me and Timothy, and so on. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Look then at chapter 6, verse 11 as well. Probably one of the, mo the clearest appeals then in this letter. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. So Paul in this letter is seeking to restore a parental love and fellowship with his spiritual children. He's saying, we've not restricted you. Our hearts are wide open to you, Corinth. But you are restricted in your own affections. And so Paul writes that their hard and closed hearts to Paul's own ministry, that they would open their hearts again to receive the grace of God and to not receive it in vain. But you see, Corinth is in the grip of the devil. Corinth is being assaulted by the devil. We'll see that later in this book. And he is fighting for the soul of this church. Open your hearts to us. Be reconciled to God through our ministry as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And this appeal is the the entire letter, if you look briefly at, the, at your worship folder in the, in the brief outline I gave to you on page 4, you see that chapters 1 to 5 are all about Paul defending his apostolic ministry. And then you see chapters 5 to the end, three great appeals for reconciliation and obedience. This whole letter is reestablishing Paul's office in the eyes of the Corinthians that they would be reconciled to God and be ready for every obedience to the will of God. 
So that's a really important framework when you study 2 Corinthians to understand the various parts of the letter all are serving this purpose for Corinth's reconciliation and that they would test and examine themselves to see whether they are in God or if they've received the grace of God in vain. So we've seen that 2 Corinthians is a letter to appeal for reconciliation. Let's now look at a second thing that 2 Corinthians is a defense of apostolic weakness. 2 Corinthians is a defense of apostolic weakness. And this is really important for us to understand as a church because the ordinary church is very weak. The ordinary church is not loved by the world. The ordinary minister is not flashy and powerful. The ordinary apostolic church is weak and relies not on the sword, but on the spirit. And the way the power of God works is through the weakness of his leaders and of his church. And so 2 Corinthians is really an important letter for us as we seek to build a church by the grace of God to make sure we are building on the right things and that we have a right expectation of how it will be, right? God is managing our expectations as a church plant by giving us this letter, and it's really important for us. So let's look at how 2 Corinthians highlights the reason for apostolic weakness. Well, one way is that we learn that suffering is for comfort. Suffering is for comfort. The reason the apostles suffered and the reason the church suffered is so that it could comfort others. Let's now go to the beginning of the letter and let's look together at chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Paul begins by describing a kind of suffering that he and his colleagues were undergoing that was so bad that in verse 8, he said, we despaired of life itself. They underwent some kind of suffering, some kind of affliction in Asia that was so bad, he said, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. It's that kind of suffering where you would beg somebody to kill you. We despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But then he says, why? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God in his mercy brought Paul and Timothy and his colleagues through some kind of horrendous suffering where they despaired of life. They would, it would have been better to be dead than alive from their personal experience. And Paul says that was to make us rely not on ourselves, right? not on our strength, 
and power, but on God who raises the dead. So that Paul shows us by his own experience that God brings us through things that highlight our weakness and our insufficiency so that we will learn to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And the whole purpose of this for the apostles and for the church is found then in verse 3. Look, look above there at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. You know, the Corinthians prided themselves in the flashy spiritual gifts. Hey, I can speak in tongues, right? I can prophesy, right? I can do these things. I am great. I am strong. I am spiritual. Perhaps the most important spiritual gifts of all for the comfort and edification of the church are those that are learned and given through suffering. Because it's through that trial of suffering and experiencing the grace of God in that suffering that we then in turn can comfort and encourage others in the church. And in this world, we've been called to proclaim the gospel. So for Paul, when suffering happened, even to this degree where he despaired of life itself, he found hope therein because God was going to use that to be a comfort for the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Stavangerinians, <laughs> those in Stavanger today, his church that God was building through the apostolic ministry. Weakness is essential for the ministry, brothers and sisters. And so may God help us use our own experiences whatever they may be, to comfort others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another mark, another reason for apostolic weakness is found in Paul's defense of his delayed visit big chunk of the opening part of 2 Corinthians deals with, chapters 1 and 2 primarily, deals with his defense of why he had to postpone his visit. And we don't have time to look deeply at that this morning. But the super apostles were certainly saying, well, if Paul loved you, wouldn't he visit you more regularly? If Paul really loved you, wouldn't he be more loving and kind when he came to you? Right? That's that's the problem going on. But then Paul says, I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 
Paul is pointing them to the issue that surrounded the reason for delaying his visit was a sinner, that it was time to forgive them. He says that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are ignorant of his designs. And Paul's delay in coming was part of his ministry to the Corinthians to get their act together before they came, lest they be outwitted by Satan. Remember, I, I told you that Paul is worried because Corinth is in the grip of Satan right now, being outwitted by him and falling prey to his designs. And then Paul, he's talking about, uh, he gives other reasons for why he couldn't come, and you can read those in your own time. But one of the other reasons that he was delayed was because of his own sufferings that were happening as he was going from town to town. And he says in verse 14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death and another from life to life. And here Paul is using a very well-known uh, experience of the Roman triumph. The, Ro the Roman triumph was a procession where the, the general of a great battle on behalf of the emperor would go through celebrating the spoils of victory. And they would be cheering the gods. And in the train of the general would be the captors. And some of those captors would become slaves. And others, particularly the, the leaders and the rulers that they defeated, would be executed to the gods as a celebration of the victory that they bequeathed to the general. But here Paul is describing the apostles as those who were captured by God. Think of Paul who was going about persecuting Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians and to kill them. But God captured him. And in that same explanation of what Paul would do in Acts 9, he tells Ananias how much Paul must suffer for his namesake as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul views his ministry as being led by Christ as a captive for suffering and even Paul's own execution. And that's why those who are looking with worldly eyes look upon Paul and the apostles as they stink of death. They're the aroma of death. And the super apostles are pointing to the Corinthians, don't follow Paul, he stinks. He stinks of death. But for those who are being saved... It is life because the gospel is coming through the apostles. And just as 
Christ was crucified in weakness and raised in power. So also, through the apostles, Christians are being saved in weakness, but raised in the power of the Spirit for a kingdom that is not of this world. The gospel can only be displayed through weakness and suffering. Because that's how Jesus himself came. I just want to quickly point out one other thing before we move to the third point. Uh, go Turn with me to chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12. In chapter 12... Paul's engaging the super apostles in a boast contest. And Paul speaks of a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, that was given to him in verse 7. Paul says it was to keep him from becoming conceited. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he tells us, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the reason that the apostles must be weak, and the reason that the church of Jesus Christ must appear weak, is that it is only then that God's power is made perfect. When we are at our worst and our weakest, Christ's love and power and grace is seen the clearest. So again, the sufferings and the weaknesses and the calamities and the slander that we go through as the church of Jesus Christ are given to us by God so that his power and love and glory will be most perfectly manifest. The gospel is seen most clearly in our weakness. You know, we are so tempted to think we really can't do any good for God until we get our act together. We show how successful we are in the world because we've practiced biblical wisdom or how successful and great our ministry is. And you should come and see it. It's amazing. We think we have to get it all together before God can use us. But actually, the thing we're doing to get it all together sometimes drives us farthest away from God. We're supposed to come in our weakness. I'm not talking about striving for sanctification here. But we shouldn't let our weaknesses and our frailty as individually or as families or as a church keep us from doing the work of ministry because that's how God's power is demonstrated when we feel weak. And we feel weak, don't, don't we? Not many of us naturally speak the natural language here. We're, I'm very thankful for you who do. 
But we're outcasts. You Norwegians that are here, you're outcasts. What are you doing at a Calvinistic church, right? Uh, isn't John Calvin like at the right hand of the devil, right? Aren't these things that we preach from Scripture so hated by so many in the church here? I think of some of you have really made life awkward for yourself by following Jesus and following his word. Why won't you do that on Sunday? You know, I can just, I could rattle on on a whole bunch of things. But you're viewed as weak, my Norwegian brethren in this church. And how about the rest of us? We're a bunch of immigrants, right? We're not cool. We're not hip. We are outsiders in this community. And yet look, look at what the Lord has done through this ministry together. Look at who the Lord has baptized and look who the Lord has saved through this ministry. And though we feel weak and we feel small, God's power is made perfect in it. So let's continue to glory in the gospel and in this apostolic ministry that's been entrusted to us through the Lord and the New Testament. Lastly then, let's turn. We've seen 2 Corinthians as appeal for reconciliation. We've seen 2 Corinthians as a rationale for the apostolic weakness. But now let's finally look at it as a wake-up call. A wake-up call to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. When you get a job or you're you're applying for a job, what do you what do you need to provide? You know, what often do you need to provide, right? Your certification, right? I went to this school or that school, I got this degree or that degree. I was I'm certified and qualified to do this. Well, the Corinthians were all about commendation. And the super apostles were all about commendation, but they were relying on the wrong things to commend themselves. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Self-ordination is not a thing in God's plan. Where, hey, I'm good. Look at me. Look what I can do. Self-condemnation is, or self-commendation is not part of God's plan. When you appear before the judgment seat of God, I would advise you not to seek entrance by commending your deeds. Chapters 10 to 12 becomes Paul's super boast against the super boasts of the apostles, these super apostles that are boasting in all the wrong things. Paul says at the start of chapter 10, I, I Paul, entreat myself to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. That's probably a slur of the super apostles. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I am not ashamed. I do not want you I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, here's one of the accusations. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. He's a terrible preacher. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do in present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who, of those who are commending themselves, that is, these super apostles. But when they measure themselves by one another, and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding, right? This is like the people that, well, oh, you're a John Piper disciple? I'm a John MacArthur disciple. I don't think John Piper or John MacArthur are doing this to one another, but it'd be like, oh, my ministry is way better than his ministry, right? They're comparing themselves to one another, just as the Corinthians are comparing themselves to one another. Well, I'm more spiritual than you are because I can do this. I'm more spiritual than you are because I have this. And Paul says that when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they display their, that they have no understanding of the things of God. They are without understanding. Paul also uses this letter as a wake-up call in the fact that he tells the Corinthians that the devil is in the details. The devil is in the details. It's the question, what does the minister's love for the church look like? And the super apostles are saying to them, did Paul really love you? If he loved you, then why is he acting this way? Look at chapter 11, verse 11. Look at this accusation. Let's go up to verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. That's where Corinth is found in Greece. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. There are are several hints throughout this letter that Paul's love is being questioned by, remember, like, they're saying, Paul, your love is restricted to us. You only have bad things to say to us. You don't love us. And Paul here says, God knows I do. God knows I do. But these super apostles, they're first mentioned there up in verse 5. The super apostles. But at any rate, these super apostles are saying, if Paul loved you, he wouldn't speak so strongly to you. If Paul loved you, he wouldn't be talking about church discipline of a church member. Thinking back to 1 Corinthians 5. If Paul loved you, he wouldn't threaten to have to come down with the rod and beat you. 
If Paul loved you, he wouldn't make you feel so bad about your divisions. And using smooth words with a serpent's tongue, they're saying, we love you. You're, you're good just the way you are. How many preachers have said that in our day? God loves you. You're fine just the way you are. God is love. And ministers of God are always loving and nice. They, they itch your scratching ears. They speak to you what you want to hear. And that's what these super apostles are doing. But the devil's in the details. Look at verse 12. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men, that is these super apostles, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, these super apostles, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So if you think of the church of Corinth as the Garden of Eden, these super apostles have crept in to the garden, said, does Paul really love you? Do these apostles who say nice but also really hard things, they don't really love you. If they loved you, they would do dot, dot, dot. And isn't that how it goes in the church? If the minister really loved you, if the elders really loved you, they would do dot, dot, dot. And they appeal to our sin nature. Yeah, and to our self-righteousness. To lead us out of the garden. Because false teachers are servants of Satan, as Paul says here in verse 14 in chapter 11, they use the same tactics as the serpent. To get, you to get you kicked out, expelled from the garden, from the church, from the grace of God. So this letter is a wake-up call to us to make sure that we block our ears to the flattering forked tongue of the devil that still speaks through false teachers today. There's a number of other things that we could point out, but I simply want to encourage you to, to study this in your own time. You can write these things down, but Paul's appeal to obedience. If you really want to know, are you in the faith? Are you obedient to the word of God? Right? In chapter 10, verse 6, he's saying, you will be ready when you're ready for every obedience. So do you want to know if you're in the faith? Are you striving to obey scripture? 
And if you want to know if a minister is obedient to the faith, is he pointing you to all scripture? Or is he like the, the priest who asked me to read scripture when we lost uh, Jedediah? And I got to the unhappy part of Psalm 139. She's like, don't read that part. A minister that blocks portions of scripture, that refuses to teach them or hide them or downplay them, that is a telltale sign of a servant of the devil masked as a minister of righteousness. It's a telltale sign of a super apostle. You know, I, I use this phrase, the apostolic sniff test. There can be a lot of guys that look really good, or gals in this day, who look really good, they seem righteous, they preach boldly, but when you sniff their ministry, it doesn't smell right. It smells of boasting and arrogance and pride and division. And that's a telltale sign that something is off. And obedience to the word of God is the hallmark sign. Are they obedient to preach and teach and believe all of what scripture says, not just parts of it or not? We could go on. We don't have time to talk more about boasting and strength versus weakness. Paul picks this up in chapter 11. But the most important thing that we need to see at the end here is where is the cross in the ministry of these people and in the life of the church? Is it something you just wear around your neck to virtue signal? Is it just something that maybe you even have constructed on a stage to virtue signal? Or is it at the very center of your ministry? Look uh, and close at chapter 13 again. Turn there with me. Paul tells the Corinthians, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. This is one final jab at the anti-gospel of the super apostles. That just as Christ was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God, so also his servants will appear in weakness. But in dealing with the church, they will live and serve by the power of God, not the power of themselves, not the power of their flamboyancy or eloquence or rhetorical skills or worldly fame. They will live by the cross. 
And then that brings us back to the beginning. So examine yourselves. This is Paul's call to them and to us. Examine yourselves. Church, let's examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith or whether we've received the grace of God in vain. First Presbyterian Church needs to be a church that's built on the apostolic model. Lest we build on something else and find ourselves building completely in vain and alienating ourselves from God. I just want to say this message is so important because our very hope is based on it. Because if God's called his people in weakness and we think we should be strong, we won't have any hope to persevere in faith. Even if the Lord brings us to something, through something where we despair of life itself, it's so that we would learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, and so that we can comfort others who experience similar afflictions. This church, by God's grace, we are striving to build it on the apostolic ministry. It's something we call the ordinary means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. And it's simple. You don't see smoke machines and fog machines and flashing lights. We're here to sing and read and preach the word. Ordinary gospel ministry built in the foundation of the apostles is not flashy, but it's God's means of reconciliation. And when we take on the apostolic message, we too become ambassadors for Jesus Christ. God making his appeal through us. If you're looking to be in a church that boasts in its greatness and satisfies your flesh, and avoid suffering, then your interest may be more with the devil than God. For the father of lies masquerades as an angel of light, and his helpers are the super apostles who field off, they feed off your worldliness that masquerades as piety. But delight in the way of the apostles, follow their gospel and way of life, and you and me will be reconciled to God. So may the cross of Jesus Christ that was so prevalent in the apostles' sufferings be our mark too, that together and when we're scattered in the world, the Lord would use us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to reconcile many to him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would Guard us from the, the schemes of the devil, from his wiles and tactics to disrupt and to harm your church. And I pray that we would, be, we would do that by being vigilant to your word. The word given by the prophets and the apostles with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone is the sure foundation for the church. And I pray that you would help us to endeavor and be that throughout our days of ministry together. And I pray that of this church for generations to come would stand on the truth of the word. That those who participate in the ministry would not be estranged from God, 
but reconciled to him. In Christ we pray. Amen.